It's called the world's ultra marathon, one of the toughest race, a race of 400 and 554 miles from Sydney, Australia to Melbourne. It's almost an impossible race. But in 1983, uh, a runner by the name of Cliff Young was entered into this race. And it looked rather bizarre because you had 150 entrants to the race who were in their regalia to run and looking race fit. And then there was Cliff. Cliff, who'd come to the registration table dressed in galoshes and overalls, looking, maybe he was just going to be a spectator. <laughs> and those viewing on TV thought, whoa, <laughs> he's just going to watch. But then they saw, this guy is, a spec is going to be a participant. At first they thought, uh, they better do something or this 61-year-old this uh, sheep herder might actually kill himself. What they didn't know is that Cliff actually worked on a 2,000-acre ranch, and he was responsible for 2,000 sheep. But he didn't have the luxury of, of a horse or four-wheel drive, and so he would often take two or three days to go across the acreage and collect the, the sheep. But as Cliff joined the runners at the beginning of the race, the, the Snickers are in the dismay, of the almost impossible turned to laughter as they watched him take off because the runners sprinted from their place and and cliff just did this odd shuffle leisurely shuffle and thought, this this is crazy this is gonna be bizarre <laughs> and yet five days later cliff young shuffled across the finish line 10 hours ahead of every other runner in the race See, the other runners uh, thought, well, what was needed is that they needed to run for 18 hours and then sleep for six, and, but no one told Cliff. He just, day by day, 24 hours, just kept running, shuffling away, never bothering to sleep, doing what everyone thought was the impossible. And as we come to the, the pages of Joshua the, this morning, Joshua chapter 3, we're also going to be faced with a people who God has camped on the shores of the Jordan, facing what looks like the impossible. And in that place, God is wanting to, to take the Israelites and, and do a, a significant number of resets. He, he wants to reset how they saw God and do a reset of how they've seen the past and what the past has done in their lives, as well as a reset of their focus and what it is to be, and lastly, a reset of the understanding of who they were. So let, let's pick up the story at Joshua chapter 3. We're going to race over some of the verses, but pick it up in Joshua chapter 3. Scripture says this, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and the people came to the Jordan River. And they lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of God, of the covenant of the Lord your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Don't come near it. In order that you may know the way that you shall go, for you've not passed this way before. And then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the, the people. 
Verse 7, today the Lord says to Joshua, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. And Joshua said, verse 8 to 9, Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here, listen to the words of the Lord your God. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Lord, the covenant, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into Jordan. So the story goes on to say how that as the priest stepped into the water, the water separated and when the priests ultimately stepped out of the Jordan River, the waters came rushing back in again, the Lord doing exactly what he said he would do. But the Lord before this took the people and sat them before the impossible. Though at first, I'm not sure that the people of Israel understood that it was going to be the, the impossible. It looked like just another three-day layover where they were just going to stop and as they've always done just sit there and then pack up and get going again just a three-day encampment but God this time said you're going to cross over far different than what had happened 40 years before when they came to this this very same place and at that point in time they were too fearful they weren't going to to step over they refused to enter the promised land the spirit of unbelief so strong that Hebrews, God tells us in Hebrews chapter 3, that your, God's speaking, your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 30, 40 years. You saw everything I did, but you didn't believe. And therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my wrath. Three days of watching and sitting at the brink of the Jordan River, contemplating. And God had told them, you're to gather your provisions and get yourself ready. But, but I think rather than just getting provisions, God had, again, a number of resets that he wanted to, to put into place. And the first was, he needed to reset how they saw God. Because for 40 years, God had led them beside the land of promise, near it, but never in it beside never in and this time things didn't look all that much different because though if you've been to the Jordan River you you won't fully appreciate this but as they sat beside the Jordan River it was at flood stage and while the Jordan River as you may look if you've been there you'll see it doesn't look all that impressive it's not that big a river it's not that far across maybe 40 yards across Depths not all that, that large. But we're told later in this chapter that this, this river was now at flood stage. And scholars will tell us that at flood stage, the Jordan River was fed by the, the mountains of Mount Hermon and also all the other tributaries fed into the Jordan River. And so at flood stage, scholars tell us that this river was often two miles across. So now Israel sat before this river watching the impossible. Likely sitting there, how is it possible that we're able to, to take our children 
and get them across this place? How are we going to get the weak and the affirmed across this river? This is an impassable situation. And the louder the river roared, the more impossible the task seemed to be as they sat there. But that was the very point. God taking them to places of the impossible, wanting the people to understand that God is the God of the impossible, that God can do what we possibly can't do. And you and I need to understand that at a very deep level as well, that sometimes the impossible is going to uh, come rushing into our lives. Things that we don't have the resources. The obstacles are far bigger than our resource. It could be the the loss of a job or the, the tsunami of finances going wrong or a crisis of health. It could be the wreckage from a, a moral failure, but, but whatever they are, the impossibles coming upon you that seem the obstacles are too large, <laughs> my resources are too small. Things for, for which we have no answer. And in this place and in these times, God's saying, I'm here. Sometimes opening the waters, sometimes carrying us in the waves. And, and sometimes, yes, sometimes allowing the waves to sweep over us. And at times like that, we don't always understand what God is doing. It, it, it seems confusing to us. But even in those times, God doing what he said he would do, he said he'd be present with us, that he would hold us, he would carry us, he would enable us, he would renew us, he would forgive us. And this sight, as the the people sat there, two million of them, watching this river, they needed a different understanding of the impossible. Because soon the obstacles that they would face weren't just the obstacles of conditions. They would soon be the obstacles and the enemies that they would face, enemies that would have skin on them. They were told they would be formidable enemies. The Canaanites, the Hivites, the, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites. Formidable enemies, one after another, one battle done, and all of a sudden you're going to step into another battle. So you better understand that the God you worship, the God you follow, is the God of the impossible. In every way you're going to turn. Where scripture tells us in verse 10 and onward, it says that the enemies are going to be in the hills. They're, they're going to be the ones that are going to be controlled by the Hittites. Up there they're going to be, and, and they're, they're going to be in the land. They're going to be the places, the, the Hittites and the Jebusites, the Amorites. And by the sea, it's going to be the Canaanites. And amongst this crew, there's also going to be those that are the sons of Anak, which means the sons of the giants, the, the Goliaths of your life. And Hebrews gives us a picture of, of what that was like when he, he talks and gives us in, in chapter 13, or sorry, Numbers 13. Then Caleb quieted the people. We should by all means go up and take possession of this land, for we will surely overcome it. But the man who had gone up with them said, we, we aren't able to go up against this people. They are too strong for us. So the ten gave a 
a report, a false report, a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it, they're men of great size. And we, we became just like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. They were enemies that were not only big, they were incredibly evil. One writer describes the, the Canaanites as a snake pit of child sacrifice and sacred prostitution. They sacrificed babies as a form of worship. They practiced orgies and they were, they were committed to uh, witchcraft. And of the Amorites, a second century writer states that they are an evil and sinful people whose wickedness surpasses that of any other. And so faced with those realities, the, the ten spies, the unbelieving spies, wrote their report in fear and unbelief. Not believing what, their, what God had said, they believed what their eyes had said. But God had said, face your enemies and their protection will be removed. Whether that protection are, are, is walls of stone or whether they be people of size or whether they be weapons of iron, their protection will be removed. The enemies will be present, but their power will be gone. And the truth of it is, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been called into a place where there are enemies and there are obstacles. We're not free from that, and quite the contrary, we're actually engaged in that. And the truth is, is when God calls us to, into his kingdom, into his family, there will be giants in the land. There will be people who will look too big and too strong and too many and too loud because that is the truth of the battle of God's kingdom where he is calling us to march behind the one who calls us. So the Israelites needed to understand they needed a reset of how they saw God. But the second reset I believe that God was needing to do at the side of the Jordan was this. They needed a, a reset of their past. Not a reset to forget, which is often what we do need to do with our past, but in this case, it was a reset to remember. They needed time to reflect on the pain and the loss that they suffered because they refused to believe God's word. They chose to choose what they saw rather than what they God had told them what they had heard. And so 40 years they had walked on the other side of promise, never entering in, close by, never going in. It was an 11-day walk that they ended up being 40 wasted years. They were near, but they were never in. Blessings going unclaimed because they refused to believe. And the truth is that we need an honest look at our past. We need to understand who we were and how lost we were before Jesus. And when we don't do that, we often lose sight and forget the price that was involved in God's rescue. We, we paint over the past. We decorate it. We, we minimize it. 
But when we refuse to admit, when we refuse to really see our sin for what it is, some of the past still clings. We, we return to places because we haven't honestly seen, we haven't fully embraced what our sin means to us and to God. And when that's the case, we do what the Israelites did. We trade God's blessings for our rushing after sand, biscuits, sand fleas and biscuits, just choosing what we think looks good, but it, it really has no, no value. Because that's what unacknowledged sin does. It trades in his blessings rather than his truth and his gift. Because the challenge that they made and we do is they missed what God wanted for them because they got the faith question wrong. We're, we are told in, in Hebrews 11 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Oftentimes when we look at that verse, we often focus on the second part of that verse, that he's a rewarder of those that seek him, that he gives rewards. But when we start in that place, we totally, entirely miss the point. Because a rewarder is the action God does. But what it doesn't speak to is why he does it. And it says, the first part says, he that comes to God must believe that he is. Is what? We need a clear understanding reset of this. We need to understand that he is God. That he is creator God. He is creator as the designer. He was the creator as the manufacturer. He was the creator as the deliverer. He is God controlling everything, sovereign over all, supreme over all. That he's God. And the second thing we need to be keenly aware of is that he is, not was, not will be, is in what is seen and happening around our lives when the storms hit and the chaos comes, that he is God, even in the places that we may not see him, he's present. He is, he is with us. He's present in what we're going through. And this is the God who is the rewarder of those who seek him, who seek him believing, who pray believing, who worship believing. He is a mighty God, but better than that, he is, a, he is a loving God, he is a listening God, he is a present God. But more important than all of those is that he is a redeeming God. A God that says, I forgive your past and I make you new in Jesus. That he invites you to see him as he invites you to a cross that I'm a God that will go to any length needed so that you may be made new. That I forgive you, I love you, I redeem you, I make you new. But the invitation to the Israelites is that they are to be a people now that are to cross over. And crossing over in, involves something. It, needs, it calls us that, that there needs to be a look at the past, but you need to understand something. 
you need to decisively sever from the past. That means you need to remember, but you need to understand as well that you are no longer bound. Because the idea of repenting, which God calls us to, is the idea, which is to say, that we are to go into a different direction. That the past is done, and now we are to move in a different direction. I love the illustration David Jeremiah gives in terms of a car. He says that the car has two major, major viewing points. It has the front windshield and it has the rear view mirror. And if we spent all our time looking in the rear view mirror, this little thing, we really are looking backwards when God is called, look outside the windshield, look where you're going. Acknowledge what's behind, but look forward into what God has called us to. But when we hold on to the past, that the good things that we think were represented there, the past will hold on to us. It becomes a place where, where Satan wants to plant doubt that, that God isn't who he said he'd be. And we settle in those places, what Israel did, is they longed for leeks and garlics. When they, when they ran into tough times and times they couldn't understand, they wanted to run back into the captivity of the past. They wanted to go back to Egypt's slavery rather than trust in the God who said, I separated the sea, I destroyed your enemies, and I provided food in your desert. Egypt, or Israelites wanting leeks and garlics forgetting the trade-off they were making. Do you remember the whips and the chains and the captivity? But that's what the enemy wants us to believe, is he plants doubt to deceive and destroy. In what you're going through right now, in, in the tough times that don't make sense, can you really trust that God is present? Can you really trust that God is, is close? There's no parted sea this time. You're in the midst of it. God has obviously abandoned you blinding us to the reality that the one who gave us life is not about to take us back into places of captivity and chains. Because as a believer in Jesus, he says, you are no longer slave, you are now child. You are God's chosen one, a believer in Jesus, clothed in his righteousness. That doesn't mean you won't sin, you and I won't sin, but what it means is, is that the, sin, the penalty for that sin, it's been paid, it's been forgiven. You've been set free. Not just set free, but you are now called to live free, you and I to live free in, in the freedom of what God has called us. The past has been forgiven and been made powerless. So there, there's the, those first two resets. The first is to, to reset their understanding of God. The second reset is to understand the focus of the past, understand what they're to do that. The third reset, I believe, is probably the most important, and that is the reset is to focus on him. And verse 3, we get the image is, when you see the ark of the covenant, move out and follow. We are to follow. We are to trust the one who leads the way. And the word follow actually has the, the literal meaning of, of getting behind. That seems obvious. But it's the same word that Jesus spoke to Peter when Peter was uh, speaking lie. And Jesus looks to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, I'm the one who is master. You were to get behind me and let me lead the way. I am the one who is in control. 
It is a, it is a statement of rank. Peter, you're not to go ahead. You're not to come alongside. You're to walk behind because I'm the one who leads. I am the master. I am the creator. I am the one who made it all. So who, the question is, who's in control? So when the master says, follow the ark, follow where the ark is going. Because if you do, you're going to possess the land. I'm taking you into the land. And if God says, as the author and designer and creator and controller and supreme overall, if God says, you're going to take possession of the land, you're going to take possession of of the land, despite the enemies, despite the wounds, despite the obstacles, despite the scars, despite what you may face, I will lead you to where I want to take you. So in the challenges you and I face, look to the ark. God is not abandoned. God's love hasn't gone less. He is with us because the ark is where God is. It was called the ark of the covenant, the ark of his promise. So as the people gathered at the side of the Jordan, they were to see the Jordan, yes, but no, they were supposed to look far beyond the Jordan and see where the ark was. That all the barriers that present themselves, and they will, will be removed by the presence of the ark. That our enemies are conquered by the presence of the ark. That what God promises is assured by the presence of the ark. The title deed of what he was about to give has already been determined. He holds it. The purchase price has been paid you will possess the land. And in the 17 verses of chapter 3, we have reference to the ark nine times because the ark is central to everything God does. The ark represents the presence of God. It, it contains the promise of God. It represents the power of God. And it guarantees the possessions of God. So when life gets thrown askew, we don't understand. We, we, we don't know what is happening. God says, but I will be with you. I will give you my power. I will give you my possessions. No, the situations may not always change, but I'm changing you in that place. Hold on. Follow me. Trust me. Because the most important part of the ark says, you're going to see wonders. <laughs> you're going to see wonders of the sea opening. You're going to see wonders of food uh, provided for you. You're going to see enemies step down. You're going to see the wonders of as soon as the priest's feet step out of the waters, the waters are going to come rushing back in again. You're going to see firm and dry ground. Not mushy, but dry, firm ground. You're going to see wonders. They're going to be amazing. They can't be answered. They're the impossibles. But most importantly, what you're going to see is you're going to see the mercy seat on top of the ark. And it's going to be the place where sin is forgiven. It's the place that God's unbreakable promise stands prominent. That I'm the God of covenant that can't be broken. And here's the difference. For the Israelites, they were told, don't come close to it. 2,000 cubits behind. Three quarters of a mile behind. The ark's going to lead out. But you stay behind. I'll lead, and God will be present, but he's, in this case, not going to be near. A holy God and a sinful people. I'll be present, but not near. There was a separation. But what the ark couldn't do and what the ark wouldn't promise, Jesus did do. 
He said, I am not distant. I am near. I am with. I am beside. I'm walking with you, carrying you. And our ark isn't temporary, and the ark represented something that the Israelites had to do every year in coming before salvation for the year ahead. But our ark, Jesus, is not temporary. When Jesus forgives, he forgives entirely. All our sins are paid for. All our sins are forgiven. So as you and I walk through times that are tough and places that are dark, when you don't clearly see what God is doing, God calls us to follow, to get behind, and to walk where he's taking us. Calling us not to sight, but calling us to faith. Years ago, a pastor's wife that I was involved, the church I was involved with, a very godly woman, a neat mother of some young kids. She was very young, but but she had been struck with cancer at a very early age, and she knew she was dying. Before she died, she, she was speaking in very weakened state. But she said this, and it, it bears listening to. And so, what's been happening this last week? The doctor's predictions have gotten worse and worse and worse. The hospice nurse comes, and you know, she describes even more worse things. But I've become happier and happier. I am so happy. I, I really don't know what God is going to do, but I know the promise that he has told me to stand on, and I'm going to stand on that. And the key thing here is this. I'm going to stand on it because God delights in faithfulness. All I know is what God has told me. And if I go to my death believing all the things that God told me, That's all he requires. And when I stand before him, some people of us really need to hear this, when I stand before him, he won't want to know whether I was right or wrong. Right or wrong in what I thought he was going to do, he will want to know, was I faithful? So for me, it's a matter of faithfulness. Resetting our eyes on the one that calls us to follow, despite the things we face. And there's one more reset that I believe that God was doing with the people as he sat them at the Jordan. And that's to re- a reset of who God called them to be. Because before they were across, God is very clear that they were to consecrate themselves. And we see this several times in Scripture. We see it in the book of Exodus where God says we see, uh, that you are to concentrate, when he said to Moses, you are to consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me. Whether that is animal, man, or animal, they, they belong to me. They're my possession. And before God gave the Ten Commandments, he told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. Today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day... The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all these people. And the idea of consecrate is uh, at least twofold. The first is they need to understand that they are a set-apart people. They are a people of God's choosing. They are a people that God wants to work out his purpose in their lives. 
They are people set aside for purpose. But the idea of consecrated also has about it the idea that they need to be a people who are clean. They are a people that have been made clean. And here at the, at the Jordan River at the side, they are to be made clean because they are going to cross over to a new life. And the thing about being made clean is that's not something you and I can do. Because it was following the ark that took them into the possession of the land. And so too it is we are made clean and called to a purpose because of what Jesus has done on a cross. Where he forgave us and we're made clean by his act of sacrifice on a cross. That he did what we couldn't do. And because we are now a people called by his name, we are called to live in accordance with whose we are, in accordance with our name. That we are to be a people that have been made clean and now are called to live clean. Again, not perfect, but ones that when we know we sin, we confess our sins and ask for forgiveness from Jesus. Because here's the thing, if we don't grasp the idea that we are a consecrated people, a people that God has set off for a purpose, not just a pastor, not just a worship leader, but everyone who comes to the feet of Jesus and bows to him has been called for a purpose, to live as a chosen one of God. But that means we are called to live in in obedience. We're not to be half in and half out. We are to be people that understand the riches of what God paid to redeem us. And we'll never live in blessing when we bear his name, but we live under the name or in the leadership of another. Oftentimes the leadership of ourselves, that we're a master of our lives. We're not. We're called to follow our Christ. Because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And he wants our whole life in the same way that he gave his whole life for us. His love not stopping at the cross, his love going through an empty tomb, taking us into a forever kingdom. His love saying, I, I redeemed, I, I redeemed, I paid it in full to Telestai. So you and I need to understand and reset our understanding of who we are, that we aren't just a people who have been saved from the past. We are to be a people who look through the front windshield and say, we're we're running for you. We're going to be a people that want to bear and follow your name and to live in accordance with your name. A people who God did the impossible for. That that God became man. He took on flesh. The impossible. We, we, We tell it but the impossible nature of that. That that God would dare to actually take upon himself our sins. But the beautiful thing about it is, is God is the God of the impossible. He's placed his full affection upon you and I. He says, I call you by name. I've made you a child. So knowing that, step in. Step large, step in and follow him. 
Uh, You may feel that you're just like a a 61-year-old sheep farmer, that you've got nothing special about you. You just wear overalls and galoshes over your work boots. You, you, You have nothing really to give, and yet Jesus' call to us is, I do the impossible. I, I take what you don't think as much and I can, I can make it the amazing. Even in the times when the impossibles loom large in your life and the storms threaten and come, seem to want to sweep you off your feet, I can do the impossible because I didn't stop doing it 2,000 years ago. I still do it. I still want to accomplish my purpose in you. You know why? Because I wrapped it all up in Jesus, in Yeshua. Yeshua, the name for Joshua, which means salvation, but far greater salvation. I wrapped it up in Yeshua, the Jesus who calls you to follow and to cross over by faith even when the uncrossable seems to loom large in front of you. Because God is, Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is, a God that does the impossible. We're just called to follow. Lord, we just pray that that we will understand that you are the God who takes us beside our Jordans, Sometimes in the waters that seem to want to overwhelm. Sometimes the current so strong that we can barely get footing. But Lord, we hold to you. We follow you. We trust you. We believe in you. Lord, we repent of our unbelief. And Lord, we, we know that you are faithful to your promise because you are the ark of the covenant. Your unbreakable promise. And we thank you in the the power and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.